I invite you to turn in your Bibles back with me this morning to the book of Jeremiah. As I mentioned last week, we are nearing the end of our study of this great book. We have just this Sunday and next Sunday left. And today, I actually want to complete a study that we began a long time ago, all the way back in September. At that time, we spent two weeks looking at one of the big messages of the book of Jeremiah, the message that judgment was coming, or more specifically in that day, that Babylon was coming. But of course, September was a long time ago. And so we probably don't remember very much about this. So I'll just review a couple things from those sermons uh, before we get going. Perhaps you can remember how in the very first chapter of the book of Jeremiah, while Jeremiah is still very young, God points something out to him and asks him what he sees. Do you remember this? Says, Jeremiah, what do you see? Okay, so can you remember this picture? Okay. At the beginning of the book, Jeremiah says, I see a boiling pot. But as you might remember, the pot that he sees isn't stable. The pot is starting to tip over toward him from the north to the south. Now, what does God say that this means? God says, out of the north, disaster will come. Disaster will be let loose on all the people who live in this land. Now, Jeremiah is supposed to remember this for the rest of his life. Whatever he does, he's supposed to remember judgment is coming. Out of the north, disaster will be unleashed. Now, a couple review questions. Can you remember which kingdom specifically will come to crush Jeremiah's people? It's on the PowerPoint, right? Babylon, okay? Can you remember which king specifically God will raise up over Babylon who will come in and destroy the people? This is King Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Jeremiah talks about this all the time. If you haven't read the book of Jeremiah, you would see this all over the place. Over 250 times, Jeremiah talks about Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? This is more than in all of the other books of the Bible combined. Now, what is Jeremiah's message about that king and that kingdom? What he is saying is that God has decided to carry out his own justice through this terrible kingdom and this evil king. Okay? Now, we spent two weeks, way back when, thinking about these things, but there was one specific question that I asked back then, but that we never answered. And that was the question of, is this right for God to judge in that way? And here's what I'm asking specifically. Is it right... Is it okay for God to use a horrible king and an evil kingdom to bring his own judgment on his people? How can a holy God do something like that? I mean, isn't there something wrong with that? Okay, that is a good question, and it is one that the book of Jeremiah answers very clearly, and that is the topic I want to talk about today. So to begin... 
I want to go to Jeremiah chapter 25. So you can turn over there, Jeremiah chapter 25. We have looked at a few verses here and there from this chapter, but we haven't looked closely at the main story in Jeremiah 25. So we'll pick up right at the beginning, Jeremiah 25, verse 1. 25.1, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the parentheses, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jeremiah says, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken it persistently to you, but you have not listened. And I'll just point out a few things. The specific year, that year is mentioned a lot in Jeremiah. It is like the key year in the book. It says it is the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That's nice to know, but that's not actually the important thing about that year historically. The important thing is what's in the parentheses. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That was the year that changed the world. In the year 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came to power, and this was when Babylon became the most powerful kingdom on earth. Now, the other thing to pay attention to is that this is about halfway through his ministry. Jeremiah ministers for 40 years. This text tells us it's 23 years in to his ministry. And how has it gone so far? How does Jeremiah describe his first 23 years? I've told you everything God wanted me to tell you, and you don't listen to anything I say. Now skip down to verse 8, because I want to see what God is going to do about that. Okay, verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. And then jump down to verse 11. This is where you see how long it will last. Verse 11, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. God will carry out his judgment against his people through Babylon for 70 years. But a key question for today is what will happen to Babylon after that? So keep reading. Look at verse 12. Then, after 70 years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making that land an everlasting waste. Okay, this is what we have not looked at. This is the answer in Jeremiah to the question, how can God use an evil nation to carry out his own justice? And by the way, this is the very same answer that God gave to another prophet around the same time, the prophet Habakkuk. That's why we read from that book earlier. Habakkuk, when you read that book, he struggled deeply with this problem of how a holy God 
could get his hands involved with such a horrible, evil people to bring judgment through them. Now, what is the answer in, in Habakkuk? And what's the answer here? It's the very same. God knows exactly what Babylon is like. God is not using them because of how good they are. God knows their sins too, and God will deal with everyone in his own timing. God will not leave anyone's sins unpunished. Or to think of it from another angle, God will right every wrong done in this world. Now, that is the message about Babylon in plain language in chapter 25. But as you read on in the chapter, God gives the message again through one memorable picture. So let's look at that. Chapter 25, verse 15. See if you can picture this. Jeremiah 25, verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink it and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Can you picture that? Can you imagine the cup? Now, verse 17, Jeremiah says, So I took the cup from the Lord's hand, and I made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as at this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, and the list goes on and on and on, all the way until verse 26. Look at verse 26. And all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. Now, I'm not sure, but this seems like it's a vision. In other words, I don't, I don't know if Jeremiah literally held a physical cup in his hand. It seems more like a vision, but the picture is really clear. God has a cup in his hand, and the cup is full of the wine of his own wrath against human rebellion. And Jeremiah takes the cup from the hand of God And then he goes around, starting with his own people, and he forces them to drink it. Now, let me ask you, how how exactly was God going to pour out his wrath at this time? Like, what was, I mean, the picture is clear, but like, what was it actually going to look like? How was God going to do it in that time? And the answer is that God's plan was to judge all these people through Babylon. God planned to execute his own justice, pour out his own wrath through them. They would not have thought of it this way. Babylon just wanted power and domination. But from God's perspective, he was planning to use them to carry out his judgment 
on the world in a way that everyone would remember. Now, again, this is where we would want to say, but wait a second. Is that really right for God to do that? To do that in that way? Now, look at verse 26, but this time, look to the last line of verse 26, where it says, and after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. Verse 27, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk, and vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword that I'm sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink it, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. I mean, that is an incredible picture. And did you notice the two things there? That Babylon will have to drink the cup too. They will not escape. And then the second thing that you notice is there is no way in this text, in this picture, in this story, for anyone to escape. There is no way in the text to escape. If somebody says, I don't want to drink that cup, God says to Jeremiah, you tell them, thus says the Lord, you will drink it. We should never forget that picture, the story of the cup of God's wrath. And it is clear in the rest of the Bible that this story is never forgotten. Now, a little later, we're going to come back and think about some of that. But for right now, I want to take us to the last big section of Jeremiah. So go ahead and turn over to Jeremiah chapter 46. And what I want to look at is the first verse. Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 1. Jeremiah 46, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. Okay. Now, from that verse, the first verse of Jeremiah 46, to the last verse of Jeremiah chapter 51. That is all you hear. One message after another about one nation after another. That's all it is from chapters 46 to 51. So if you start thinking about this, this should remind us of Jeremiah chapter 25, the chapter we just looked at. In Jeremiah 25, you get a picture from the Lord of the nations and a cup of wrath. In Jeremiah 46 to 51, you get a word from the Lord about the nations and his wrath. These chapters are directly connected. In fact, if you happen to have a Polish Bible, because I know some of us, these chapters don't show up at the end of Jeremiah. They show up in the middle of Jeremiah 25. This is why if you ever look at some books, the, order, the ordering of Jeremiah is different. Okay? These chapters have, for a long time, been read right with this picture of Jeremiah chapter 25 and the cup. So let's start looking at just a, a little bit of what's in the chapters. We're not going to look at a lot of it. <clears throat> but look at Jeremiah 46, verse 2, and just look at the first two words. About... Egypt, okay? And then for the rest of the chapter, what do you hear? 
God's word of judgment on Egypt. Okay? Then look down to chapter 47, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines. And then, for the rest of that short chapter, what do you hear? God's word of judgment on the Philistines. Then look to the next chapter, chapter 48, verse 1. First two words, concerning Moab. And then, for the rest of that really, really long chapter, what do you hear? For 47 verses, you get God's word of judgment on Moab. And this continues, one nation after another, all the way through the end of chapter 49. But just like what happens in chapter 25, everything in this section eventually leads to what nation, do you think? It all leads eventually to Babylon. Chapter 25, the cup of wrath is passed from one nation to another to another until finally, after everybody else is drunk, who has to drink it? Babylon. You go to chapters 46 to 51, word of the Lord about this nation, this nation, this nation, and it all leads, in the end, to Babylon. To see this, look at chapter 50, verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 1. The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, conceal it not, and say, Babylon is taken. And for two chapters in a row, this is the message. The two chapters amount to 110 verses. About one theme. Babylon will fall. God will repay her for what she's done. He will right every wrong she's done. Now, of course, we don't have time to read all 110 verses today. So I picked out one section from it to give you a taste of what's in the 110 verses. So look at Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 5. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 5. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunk. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. So forsake her. Let us go each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. That is a small sample of 110 verses of doom and judgment. There will be no healing for Babylon. God's purpose is to destroy them. Vengeance is his. He will repay. Babylon must fall. Babylon will fall. But what I also want you to see is how that whole section ends. Look at chapter 51, verse 59. <clears throat> chapter 51, verse 59. The word, chapter 51, 59. The word that Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sarah 
the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah, king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign, Sariah was the quartermaster. Okay. Now, that doesn't probably mean much, but I think you'll find this interesting, that Sariah was Baruch's brother. Okay? So this guy seems to be another one of Jeremiah's friends. But this guy, Sariah, Baruch's brother, happens to work in the government of Judah. And so he has the opportunity to actually travel on official business to Babylon and visit with some of the exiles who are out there, people like Daniel and others. But the question is, okay, what did Jeremiah command him to do when he got there? Because did you see that in the text in verse 59? Jeremiah commanded him to do something, but what did he command? Look at verse 60. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come on Babylon. All these words that are written about Babylon. I would say the 110 verses. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O oh Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off, so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. <clears throat> and when you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates River and say, Thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I'm bringing on her, and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. That right there is how the main part of the whole book of Jeremiah ends. Jeremiah tells Baruch's brother, take this scroll with you on your trip. I want you to read it publicly about how Babylon is going down. And then I want you to go over to the Euphrates River, tie a stone to it, throw it out into the water, and say, thus shall Babylon fall to rise no more. Jeremiah gives great, great missions to Baruch and other friends of his, right? Okay, that, but that gives you a taste of how important the message is in the book. They are the last words from Jeremiah in the book. This is the last message you're supposed to remember when you read the book of Jeremiah. Thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more. God will not leave any sin unpunished. He will deal with them all, and he will right every wrong. Now, after working through those things, I hope that what Tim read, we did a great job with our reading. I don't know where Tim is. Tim is somewhere, but thank you for reading those, the verses, because those verses from Revelation, that was a tough read. But I hope that the reading from the New Testament makes a little more sense in light of this message from Jeremiah. Because you remember how he read in Revelation about the fall of Babylon. But then it raises a question, because the story in Revelation is about a day that is still to come. So what's the deal with that? I mean, I thought Jeremiah said that Babylon would fall after 70 years, all the way back then. Did they? Did Babylon fall? 
What happened after 70 years? Well, after Jeremiah died, Babylon did indeed fall like a stone. You can read about it in the book of Daniel. Daniel lived through that time period, and he lived into the next world power. But as you read the New Testament, here's what you find. Babylon becomes something of a symbol. That's why sometimes in the New Testament, Babylon refers to the dominant power in the New Testament, which is whom? Rome. But more broadly, Babylon becomes a symbol not just for the city of Rome, but I think even more broadly for the city of man, for the city of luxury, pleasure, immorality, for the city that still hates God and hurts God's people. And what you find in the New Testament is already hinted at in the Old Testament. And what is that? It is that what God did to Babylon over 2,500 years ago is not all that God will do. The judgment that came through Babylon and then to Babylon was not the final judgment of this world. It was just a foretaste of a greater judgment that is still to come. And I think if you think of the Bible, the whole story, at different points in human history, God has stepped in with powerful, memorable displays of his wrath that we still talk about today. You see this in the garden when God exiles his people from Eden. You see this at the flood when God nearly cuts off all human life. You see this at Sodom and Gomorrah when God rains down fire and brimstone. But those judgments in the Old Testament in Genesis actually prepare us for the judgment that Jeremiah talks about, the judgment of exile. If you read those chapters about Babylon, a lot of the language is the same language of the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah are referenced a few times. Those judgments prepared for that judgment when God poured out his wrath in a unique way through Babylon and then to Babylon. But as you keep reading the Old and the New Testament, what do we realize? That was not the end of God's judgment. Instead, that story becomes a symbol for something greater, for something even more devastating. It becomes a symbol for a day still in front of us, for the day when God pours out his wrath on Babylon once more, for the day when God pours out that cup on the city of man. I mean, listen again to what was read from Revelation. This is chapter 18. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and he threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence, and she will be found no more. The text today shakes us because of what God did in the past. But the truth is, the story is not over yet. God will shake this world once more on the day of his wrath. This study has been about some pretty big things, some pretty heavy things. 
But as I try to do each week, I try to step back and think, okay, what are we supposed to do with that? Okay, here are four things, big things, to, I think, to take away from this. Perhaps you'll have others. I would love to hear them from you. But, but here are four I've been thinking about. First, we have seen something big about God today. And that is that God is big. God is king over all kingdoms. The God of Israel, even in the Old Testament, is the God over all nations. He is the one using Babylon. He calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. God passes his cup from one nation to another. God gives words about every one of those nations because God is king over all of them. Second, although we may struggle <laughs> deeply with the doctrine of final judgment, we need this doctrine. We may wrestle in our hearts, and it's understandable, with the idea that there is still a day in front of us when God will pour out his wrath in the way described in Revelation. But we need this doctrine. We cannot abandon it. We need to know that no sin will go unpunished. We need to know that God will right every wrong. We live in a society today that has completely lost any sense of future justice. Who do you know today who's not here, who actually believes that there is a day of judgment coming? Do you know any coworker who's not worshiping Jesus today who believes that? This is foolishness to people today. They never think about this. We live in a society that has completely abandoned this. And the loss of that has devastating consequences on a society. What does it lead to when you completely abandon the idea of future judgment, of a day of reckoning? And one thing is that that leads to, for some, is completely reckless living, running hard after evil with no regrets and no concerns. After all, why not? If there is no day of reckoning, then what does it matter? But the other thing that this leads to for some is to despair. And here I am thinking especially of those who have suffered serious injustice or abuse and have never seen any vindication. If there really is no day of reckoning, if it's not really true that God will right every wrong, then what does that mean? What does that mean for those who suffer unjustly and never get to see any justice for it? It leads to despair. We may struggle with the doctrine of final judgment, but we need it. God knows that we need to know this, that he will not leave any sin unpunished, he will right every wrong that has been done. Third, sprinkled throughout these words of judgment 
though I haven't highlighted them yet, we get glimpses of God's mercy. Our God is a God who even in the midst of wrath remembers mercy. And this has been one of the most encouraging things for me this week about these chapters. I want to show you what I mean. Okay. Sprinkled through the chapters are little signs of mercy. So go, go back to chapter 46. And I'm just going to read little lines, typically. Jeremiah 46. This is about Egypt. It's a whole chapter of judgment. But then look at verse 26. Jeremiah 46, 26. I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. But then look at what it says. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old. Now look down a couple chapters to what God says to Moab in Jeremiah 48. 47 verses of judgment. Look at the last verse, 48, 47. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days. Then look down a few verses for what God says to the next people, Ammon, chapter 49, verse 6. But afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites. But it's not just words like that. Right in the middle of the 47 verses of judgment on Moab, we find this. Look at Jeremiah 48, verse 30. This has maybe been the most surprising thing in this entire text. Jeremiah 48, verse 30. There are 47 verses about Moab. And in the middle, this is what God says, 48:30. I know his insolence, declares the Lord. His boasts are false. His deeds are false. Therefore, I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab, for the men of Kurharaseth. I mourn. More than for Jazer, I weep for you, O vine of Sibna. God is not a God who takes pleasure in the death of the wicked. Instead, we find God doing here the same thing God did for his own people when he brought judgment on them. We hear the wailing, the mourning, and the weeping of God. And then, even in perhaps the, one of the most graphic judgments of the whole book, which is the words on Edom, where there's actually no promise of future hope, I want to look at one thing God says to the widows and orphans from Edom. Look at chapter 49, verse 11. There is nothing else good said about Edom, but God has one word for the widows and orphans. Leave your, this is 49.11, leave your fatherless children. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. You see, if, if you fear the judgment of God today, don't run from God. Run to him. He will judge, but he will show mercy to those who flee to him, to those who stop running. God is a God of mercy who forgives sin 
and who loves to abundantly pardon not just the Jews, but even the most unworthy Gentiles. And then lastly, if we focus in on just the story of the cup in Jeremiah, I think we would have to conclude there is no way to escape drinking it. That is the case in that chapter. But as you keep reading the story of Scripture, you find that that story from Jeremiah 25 gets etched into the pages and the storyline of the Bible, and the cup keeps coming back. And what you find is that God does make one way of escape, and that is that if someone other than you, someone better than you, drinks it for you, you don't have to drink it. And there is no doubt that the language of the cup in the New Testament, especially in the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, comes back to texts like Jeremiah 25. Jesus falls on the ground before his father, shortly before his cross, and cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And yet, not what I will, but your will be done. It was the Father's will for the Son to drink the cup for us. And praise God, Jesus drank it down to the dregs. He drank the bitter cup down to the last drop so that we would not be told, you must drink. Let the story of the cup lead you to the cross this morning. Are you looking to Christ and his sacrifice for your pardon? God has made one way to escape drinking the cup. You have to look to Christ who drank it down. And if you are trusting in Jesus, when is the last time you said thank you to Jesus for what he did for you? We have a chance to do that here at this table this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this a heavy message, but yet one that we need for many reasons. Thank you that you are just, that you will always do right, that you will deal with every wrong. And then, Lord, thank you for Jesus who drank the bitter cup for us so that we could be forgiven and not have to drink it ourselves. We thank you and praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.